Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Our passage is going to be Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through verse uh, 13. I'd ask that you stand as we read the passage together. The word of the Lord. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Is it not those who are healthy who need a physician? Pardon me. It is not those who who are healthy that need a physician, rather, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have not come to call those who are righteous. For Father, the Psalms and Romans both confirm the truth that there is no one righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Together they have all become worthless, save for your mercy and your hand to reach in and change our hearts. Father, this is how we come before you this morning in humility Father, I pray that you'd give us open minds and hearts to receive what your word would have us learn. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our opening verse, we see that things have changed from last week. The settings change a lot in the Gospels. Jesus is constantly on the move. And so last week, he was in his house or a house that he would often reside in. And it was the story of the paralytic. And we see this morning that he has gone on from that house, from healing the paralytic, and along the way, he saw a man with the name of Matthew sitting in a tax collection booth. And the text says that after seeing him, after beholding him with his eyes, Jesus decides to call out to him, follow me. Matthew gets up, follows after Jesus. Very simple, basic narrative. It's almost like the the children's books that we would read to our kids, right? The the action steps are very simple. There's not a whole lot going on in the setup for the story, but there's more. We're told that this man was in the middle of business. He was in the middle of a shift. And we're told that what he was engrossed with, what he was working in, was the realm of tax collecting or some other sort of customs. Maybe he was sitting in a tent or a shack along the Sea of Galilee, imposing taxes that were on those that were bringing in goods off of that sea, off the coast. We don't know. Whatever it was, we know that he was in the midst of business, and it's not explicit, but it's implicit in this text that the work he was doing was not well received in the public eye. It wasn't an occupation that was well respected. Now, seeing that my sister just graduated from law school, I'd like to share just a joke to highlight this. What is the difference between a catfish and a lawyer? 
Some of you probably heard this. Well, one is a bottom-dwelling scum sucker, the other is a catfish. I can't tease my sister without teasing myself, too, though, or she'll be unjust. It's unjust. When I first met my wife, it was probably the first time I went over to my in-laws, and uh, I love my, my father-in-law and my stepmother-in-law. After we had left, or maybe while we were there, I don't remember really the way it came about, but I was told that at the time I was roofing, roofing with Kevin. And that was what I was doing basically full-time. And so I've just met my father-in-law. Uh, he's a police officer with the Toledo Police Force, um, and so is his wife. And uh, he made the comment that not every criminal is a roofer, but every roofer he knows is a criminal. <laughs> Uh, so you have these jobs that, that uh, become known for, you know, the, the, it's a joke. We all laugh, and yet we, we know that there's a, a, a glimmer of truth in it because no one would make that catfish joke about, like, a home health care worker, right? It just would not be funny. <laughs> and so we know there's, just, there's, a, there's a sliver of truth in, in these sorts of jokes, and if we have humility, we can take it with grace. And um, Matthew is a tax collector. This is an occupation that uh, is really not looked down upon. I was trying to think of maybe a, a, re- a more modern-day current example of something like this. And the equivalent is really hard to come by because the things that I thought about that people really hate are things like TSA agents when you're going through on an international flight and you've got all your luggage packed and you get up on that thing and it goes red, you know? They just receive the brunt of hatred for the work that they do. Or a few weeks ago, I was in Menards, and it was right after the, the mask mandate. I think it might have been before it was a mandate, and so Menards was taking a step forward. They had like a, you know, a 12 by 12 sign in their lobby saying, you must wear a mask to come in, and like 99% of the people are walking by that, that sign without a mask. And so there's this, I was making a return, and you know, they've got this poor securitas, security officer, this lady there standing, and obviously they have to, you know, hire that sort, sort of stuff out because no employee from Menards is going to get paid 10 bucks an hour to tell every single person that walks through that they need to go put on a mask. I mean, she was just dealing with tons of junk, and I felt really bad for, for this girl because it wasn't her fault, and she's just receiving the absolute hatred of everyone that's going in. And so those two things came to my mind, but Matthew's a tax collector. People despised tax collectors. And the reason is is that they were uh, known for being unjust. They were known for usury. They were known for plundering. And especially in Jesus' day, those that worked in such occupations were automatically regarded as low lives, scoundrels, deceivers, cheats. It was sort of the daytime male equivalent to a woman of the night. With every transaction, you have to sell part of your conscience off. And so, uh, it's not explicitly said in the text, but if we look at verse 10, it's implicit there. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. What this verse tells us is that sometime after Jesus called to Matthew, follow me, and Matthew came after him, Matthew decided to have Jesus into his home. Again, Matthew is, as far as I've preached thus far, most of these stories are the sparsest of the gospel accounts. So Luke tells us a little more, and he shares that this, this invitation was not just 
um, a personal invitation to Jesus, but it was actually a feast thrown in Jesus' honor. Matthew's been called, his life's been changed by Christ, and so he throws a feast. He wants to celebrate the work that Christ has done in him. He wants to worship and praise Jesus himself, and so he throws a feast, and he invites people in. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and sinners that came to his house party. Notice it doesn't say that there were just a few sinners or a few uh, rabble-rousers that showed up to a saintly event uninvited. Tax collectors and sinners were the constituency of Matthew's friends at this time and, and, and of the party. The people that were uh, at the party were his friends and co-workers. We're told about them so that we might deduce what sort of fellow Matthew had been. These details aren't just arbitrary. They, God wants us to think about what the Scripture says and deduce, right? Therefore, what does this mean? It means that Matthew had a character, and his character prior to coming to Christ, prior to that call, was really a slime ball. He was a slimy guy. It was a curious move when Jesus called to the poor fishermen, that he saw and said, come on, follow me. He called out to Peter and Andrew and James and John. They were blue-collar simpletons, but they probably had good character and grit. They probably knew how to make an honest day's wage. Matthew, on the other hand, what's redeemable about this guy? Nothing. Nothing on the surface. He had bad character. He probably lacked integrity. He didn't earn honest wage. He probably, to add insult to injury, he probably lived, if he's throwing a great feast in his home, in comparison to the other four disciples that Jesus has called at this point, he probably lived a rather white-collar life. And so, why would Jesus call this guy? What does Jesus see in him? Why would he admit him, not just into the family of God, but why would he call him to the office of an apostle? The answer is that God, God, wanted to display in full array, like the most glorious sunrise you've ever seen, the sort of sunrise that takes up your whole horizon, the whole skyline, in full array, his sovereign, sovereign choice and his grace and his mercy and his power. To take not just a run-of-the-mill sinner, an ordinary sinner, the kind of sinner that other sinners despise and hate and confer on him, and give him the title and the authority and the responsibility of an apostle is to show the power of God in a way that should cause us to fear and to worship God. There's power at play here. God is reaching in and changing the hearts, the heart of this man from from death to life, from stone to flesh, from coldness to warmth. It should cause us to look at God and understand that His ways are not our ways because we would not have made that choice. It should cause us to feel wonder and feel an overwhelming sense of our own smallness before God and yet At the same time, it should cause our hearts to have joy, knowing that the same power of Jesus, the same power of God that called this man, Matthew, to himself, is the same power that has called us to Jesus Christ this morning. The scripture says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
all have sinned. All have fallen short. Each one of us, doesn't matter whether you grew up on the street or in the pew, have sinned. And various sins look different. There's a lot of people in this room. That means there's a lot of different besetting sins in this room. Some of our sins look dirty to anyone. Other sins you can dress up and you can even take out. Some sins have even become socially desirable. Still others receive the scourge of all the public's opinion and disdain. But we have all sinned. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means that we have failed to attain to the perfect standard of righteousness that God requires. We are all marred with the filth of sin before a just, perfect, and holy God. We have fallen short. And knowing this, the idea of looking at a case like Matthew, or like the homeless man or woman on the corner, or the adulteress, or the guy who owns the tattoo parlor down the street who's really caused the clientele of your block to go down, or the white class guy who's hooked on fentanyl, or your coworker who just got knocked up, or the homosexual guy that's in the cubicle three cubicles down. To look at any of these guys and to cling on to some judgment based on our own morality to make a distinction between ourselves and anyone else based off of an idea of how good we are is absolutely crazy. It's the equivalent of two patients who've received a terminal illness diagnosis and one of them decides to act smug because his life expectancy is a week longer. That is the craziness of trying to discern and divide between us and other people based off of our own morality and not what Christ has done in us. Not on the sovereign choice, power, and mercy of God to transform our lives. That's the reality. Sin has infected us all, and without the, invent in, 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 the intervention of the divine doctor's hands, we all succumb to the same fate, which is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so the calling of Matthew this morning should cause our hearts to rejoice, like Paul commanded us in Philippians 4. Rejoice always. It should cause us to rejoice because in Matthew's story, we see the power of God that delivered us or can deliver us from a sure, certain faith that we have secured by our own hands. And this is a wonderful truth. This is something to rejoice in. This is life-changing. And yet the Pharisees don't see it that way. The Pharisees have a very different opinion, a very different take. The religious leaders, they see what's happening. Jesus in Matthew's house. And instead of giving glory to God and praying for a confluence of conversion, some sort of spiritual awakening... Instead of praying that the same conviction that caused Matthew to leave off his old way of life and go on to a new glorious way of life, instead of praying that that would inhabit the hearts of Matthew's friends, they spit at Jesus. That's really what they're doing. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher 
and eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Why does he do that? Notice that they, they go to the disciples. They attack Christ by soliciting a revolt amongst those that follow him. And their sneaky, pathetic character here really reveals the fact that they are of their father, the devil. That's what is, they're accused of. You are of your father, the devil. And we see that here. They're doing the same thing that Satan did in the garden. Satan went to the weaker vessel, Eve, and he whispered things in her ear. He didn't go straight to Adam. He didn't deal with Adam head on. And we see here that these religious leaders have come in, and they've walked on up to the disciples at the punch bowl and said, Hey, what do you really think of this? Praise be to God that Jesus protects his sheep. He doesn't leave them to fend for themselves. And so we see that the disciples don't respond. Jesus responds. He wards off their oppression. And he says this, It is not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. But go, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not call, come rather to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to think about these statements of Jesus Christ. From his words and from the Pharisees' own words, it is clear that the Pharisees lack both an understanding of their own sinfulness as well as the true understanding of what God actually desires from those that would call themselves his. They don't understand themselves. They don't understand their hearts. They don't understand what God wants. It's no doubt that the Pharisees' spite towards Jesus is inflamed in the very fact that Jesus chose to pursue, call, and spend time with Matthew, a tax collector. If you think about Jesus' life, Jesus was around the temple a whole lot. If you think about the account, we, I think we brought it up a few weeks ago. At 12, he was at the temple, and he was left at the temple. And what was he doing? He was about his father's business. He was listening and he was teaching. And he wasn't just teaching in rudimentary sort of rough language and theology. He was teaching as one who wowed those that heard him because they said, who is this child? Isn't he the son of a carpenter? How how does he know this stuff? So Jesus has spent a lot of time in the temple around religious leaders by the time he's approximately 30. And what we see is as his ministry takes off, he doesn't spend time teaching and hanging with the scribes and the religious leaders and the Pharisees. He spends his time with men like Matthew. He spends his time with Peter. Blue-collar sorts. Despised sorts of people. This inflames them. It's bad enough that Jesus would chose to be around sinners, and yet now he's adding to the sharp reality that, he's, that he, Jesus is adding to the sharp contrast in reality by bringing them into his inner sanctum. There's huge issues now. And Jesus says to the religious, it's not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. As if to say, are you jealous 
Why are you spiteful? Oh, are you sick now? Of course you're not. I really think this is a ridicule. You know, you aren't sick. I've come for the sick. He then dismisses them to depart. Go and learn. Some kids have probably, when I say that, they, they have a mental flashback to something their dad or mom said to them recently. Get out of here and think about it. <laughs> I know I do. <laughs> Go and learn what the Scripture really means. He's unwilling to let his authority be undercut or his work or his mission second-guessed. Go and learn what it means. And then he gives them a quotation from one of their own, Prophet Hosea. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. That's what Jesus says. He wanted them to be brought to a knowledge of the truth through reflection on God's word. Remarkably, this quotation from Hosea is quoted twice by Jesus in the few years that he had his ministry on earth. Now, Jesus, I I couldn't think of another passage that he quotes verbatim twice. I know that he quotes a lot of psalms. They're the most quoted. But I can't think, and maybe I'm missing one, but I, I can't think of an exact quotation from the same verse in the Old Testament that he uses twice. And he says this twice to the Pharisees. We're going to get to the next one in chapter 12 when the disciples are going through the grain fields and plucking. And they say, hey, you, they're eating and picking grain on the Sabbath. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not, yet sac- and, and not, sacri- not sacrifice. So I want to read not just his quotation. I want to take us back to Hosea, Hosea 6. You don't have to turn there. It, it says, God's speaking to his people. And it says, what should I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty to, me, loyalty to me is like the morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Now, Many of us have just gotten back from the camping trip. You saw Parker was in a whole bunch of foliage just a few moments ago. It was a great trip. Um, but I was not able to go on the camping trip. Uh, on the canoe portion of the camping trip, I had to leave early yesterday to get home for some, some things. And there is one thing I hate, and it is packing up a sopping wet tent. And I packed up a sopping wet tent. Now, my wife, the last couple of years thank you, has dried it out for me. But I hate packing up a sopping wet tent. It just feels so wrong to shovel that nasty, dirty, sandy stuff into a bag and after it's folded, you know. But do, if we could have waited 40 more minutes, my tent would have been dry. I just didn't have the 40 minutes to, to, to spend. You know, you wake up, And if you slept in a tent and you're lucky, you're dry. If you're not lucky, you wake up, and even if it hasn't rained, the side of your body, if you've got three kids plus me in a two-person backpacking tent, you wake up slammed against the side of the wall, and all the moisture has come through the side wall, and it's soaked you through. And it's just a mess. Dew is nasty. But the thing is, is that you go out to the campfire, and you sit down, and you have a coffee, and you slam a Pop-Tart, and by the time you're done, it's pretty much dried out. Drew, when the heat of the sun comes on to do it, it evaporates pretty quickly. Hosea is saying they acknowledge God with their lips. They offer sacrifices. They toil in ceremonies. How many of us would say we toil in ceremonies? They're doing more than you are. 
they accumulate many rights. And in the end, after doing all this, they think that God is made bound to them, that they fully perform their duty. But that's not what God wants. Hosea goes on to say, your loyalties like the morning cloud do, which goes away early, but I, God, delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. Now notice that the word loyalty is used here. Israel's loyalty is like the morning dew. The same word is used when God says that he desires loyalty rather than sacrifice. That word in Hebrew is hesed. I'm pretty sure that whatever scripture, was it Micah that Zach used in the assurance of pardon after the, the, the prayer of confession, he said something about steadfast loving kindness. Hesed is a word that we don't have in English directly. You have to combine a couple of words to get the full sense of it, but it means a steadfast loving kindness of God. It's this, it has this connotation of unfailing devotion combined with an absolute intense love. It's the word that through the Old Testament, many, many places, God uses to describe his own loving kindness toward us. And so maybe we don't have a word for it, hesed, in our English language directly, but if you're a Christian today, you have experienced hesed. You have experienced this loyalty, this absolute fierce loving kindness of Almighty God in your life personally. Now notice also something else. Jesus, in his quotation of the passage, chooses not to use hesed. He doesn't say God prefers loyalty, steadfast loving kindness, but he instead uses a different word. Now, it's Hebrew to, Hebrew to Greek, but he, but he could have used a closer word. He, he chose to change the word. He changed it to compassion with a sense of mercy. So if you're reading in the King James, the New King James, the ESV, many different translations will say, if you memorized it as a kid, you likely have memorized this saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. NASB translates this word as compassion. There is, a, there is a sense of mercy built into that Greek word of compassion. Of course, this is not a misquotation of Scripture. Jesus wasn't just having a bad day and got his memorization uh, mixed up. It is rather a perfect application of the truth spoken by Hosea. Just as sacrifices don't really just stand for the slaughtering of an animal on an altar, but rather all outward signs and, and invisible acts of ceremonies and feasts and rituals and cleansings that Israel would have participated in, so too, when he says loyalty or loving kindness, speaks to all of faith and compassion flows with loving kindness towards God. Jesus is using the scripture as one who truly understands it, who understands it and is applying it effectively to these religious leaders. He applies it exactly where they need it. In essence, the Pharisees are displaying their lack of hesed, their lack of loving kindness and devotion to God in their lack of compassion towards the poor, towards the sinner, towards those that they deemed undesirable. They are demonstrating a lack of faithfulness toward God in how they treat men like Matthew. And Jesus is not going to stand for it. Compassion and mercy for other people is a natural consequence that flows 
out of one's steadfast love for God. It's not a potentially uh, a potential result of love for God and faith. It is an absolute, always present attribute of someone who is actually devoted to the Lord. Therefore, Jesus' words to the Pharisees are a practical outworking of 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. For one cannot love a brother who he sees if he, if he does not love a brother, rather, whom he has seen. He cannot love God who he does not see. Now, one other thing. Um, am I saying that worship services, Lord's Supper, all these things don't actually matter? Of course not. As we consider what God's saying through Hosea, it's necessary to understand that he isn't telling Israel that he doesn't care about how he is worshipped. God never says that. He cares very, very much. All of those commands and instructions that he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, he isn't diminishing the importance of those things. Remember how Aaron's two sons got struck down for offering strange fire, for being fools in their conduct in the house of the Lord, and God struck them down. He isn't saying that he was just a little overzealous that day and that this is how he really feels. He is very concerned about sacrifices with burnt offerings. He cares very much about our worship here today, what we do and what we don't do, what we sing and what we don't sing, how we observe his table. But everything external, everything external is worthless if his people show no devotion, faith, love toward him in their hearts. Without real faith working through love, as Galatians says, Galatians 5, without real faith working through love, killing of animals and letting their blood spill down over the stones is just killing animals. That's why throughout Isaiah, at different points, you'll read verses that attributes pagans' sacrifices as if murder, because they're worthless. They don't do anything because they don't have faith. It's not tied to anything in their hearts worthless. In fact, it's more than worthless. It's an offense against Almighty God. Again, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, God says at many points that the offerings of rebellious Israel try his patience. He says that sacrifices and festival observances have become a burden to him. The God who holds the universe in his hand is burdened by your rights and religious ceremonies when they are unaccompanied with faith. All external devotion to God is an abomination that will cause us to be a stench in his nostrils if it's not undergirded with love. That's why Paul says, I can be anything, I can do anything, I can have tongues of angels. If I don't have love, it's worthless. This is why Christ says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and the second greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you have God, and then you have your neighbor. And then he says this, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that those two commands, oh, well, Jesus sort of combined that verse from Deuteronomy and that verse from Leviticus in the New Testament. So that, those two things have to be founded on the law. No, he's saying the exact opposite. 
He's saying that all of the law and the prophets are, foundation, are supported by these two truths. Love for the Lord and love for our neighbor as our, like we would love ourselves. All of the law and the prophets are based on those two commands. Didn't switch in the New Testament. That's for all time. And so uh, I want to ask this morning, have you learned the truth that Jesus pressed on the Pharisees? Have you come to understand what it means that God desires the inner fruit of faith in the heart and in the soul over all the external manifestations of religious devotion? And by saying that, I'm not putting down anything that God would call us to in terms of outward worship. What I'm saying is this, do you understand the reality of our hearts needing to be in the right place for all of those things to matter at all before God? And in fact, so that all those things that we do don't actually testify against us on the last day. Do you value what God values? Are you compassionate? As someone who claims the blood of Jesus to have transformed your life, like Matthew, do you show compassion and mercy in your relationships? Are you quick to overlook offense? Or are you the sort of person that assumes the worst of people's character, of their intentions, when you don't know? Or maybe even when you do know. One of these people understands what God requires, the other does not. You think about different relationships, and if you're modeling this, I, I think of marriage in, in some ways because, you know, if you think about the life and ministry of Jesus, many people disregarded Christ, and yet when Peter denied Christ, it was especially sad. And painful because Peter and Jesus were close. And yet Jesus forgave Peter. Do you show this sort of mercy in your marriage? I think that marriage is a miracle because in marriage you have the uniting of two sinners. And they become one flesh in the sight of God. And they live together. And if you're honest, we sin against our spouse every single day throughout the day. And so my mind goes first there because I honestly think that if there's a place where we need mercy and we want to check ourselves and say, do I believe this? And you're married, you look and say, am I compassionate with my spouse? Am I merciful there? We often can put on faces outside the home that we let down inside the home. How do you view your, what's your marriage like? Are you working hard to keep an appearance on the outside, the sacrifice, the ritual, the very public thing, while the inside is shambles? Are you just trying to make it work, or does your marriage look like gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? What's your attitude toward the lost? Are you driven by compassion and remembering when you were trapped in the bondage of sin yourself? Or do you only have disapproving nods and chastising remarks to offer? 
Or maybe there aren't, honestly, maybe, maybe it's just more silence, the sound of silence. You don't chastise, you just don't speak either. Or perhaps you really actually like the distinction between you and the others around you. Let's be honest. In the history of the earth, there has never lacked a time where hypocrites were rare. Right? Hypocrisy is always at the threshold of the door for the Christian. This was the Pharisees' lives. They, they didn't speak to other people in part because they liked the distinction of the greetings in the marketplaces and the, the tassels and the gowns and looking different. And I think sometimes we don't speak not because we're always ashamed, but because in our hearts we actually like the fact that there's a distinction between us and someone else. We like the fact that there's a, you know, you can see the trajectory of the life. And, you know, I'm just a little bit more, you know, have a little more integrity. And our pride swells. What's your attitude toward those in the church? We're in a polarizing day. We're in a day where... There aren't many examples of compassion and mercy in our climate. We in the church are facing challenges that in many ways are unprecedented in our time. And and the strain put on the bride of Christ, put on the church, will cause its weaknesses and its sins to come out. They're going to emerge. Are we going to be shown men and women that have compassion for each other and love each other despite our sin? Or are we going to push away from each other? Are we going to embrace each other and follow uh, Christ's example? Because we know that God values mercy, kindness, unity. Do you understand that it is a travesty to claim faithfulness to Jesus on the grounds, the very same grounds that cause you to be quarrelsome and divide with your brother? I think this pandemic has made some feel like They're really taking a stand for Christ in the very act of rejecting and tearing apart the body of Christ. Scripture says we are a body, many parts of one whole, each with its function. And it's sad when people claim to be advancing in the kingdom of God by taking their scalpel to that body. It's sad. Two times in our passage, we are told that people saw things. In verse 9, Jesus saw Matthew sitting in his tax collection booth. In verse 11, we're told similarly that the Pharisees see Jesus at the table with tax collectors and sinners that were coming to him. In the first case, Jesus seeing Matthew results in a call, salvation, transformed life. In the second case, the Pharisees seeing the whole situation results in accusations and strife and a verbal tongue lashing from Jesus. The Pharisees viewed Matthew and Jesus and all of Matthew's friends all wrong. They didn't see it correctly. Now, I have a confession of sorts. Um, Over the past few weeks, I have developed something that's a, a very large cause of irritation in my life, and that is when I'm typing... My eyes hurt, and I've started getting the feeling that perhaps I don't wear glasses or contacts. Perhaps something is wrong with my eyes, because I did not see black balloons, but I'm having a hard time distinguishing between fives and sixes and M's and N's and things like that, and it's really 
you know, when you're typing and you have to position your head like this to read something, it's annoying. And so I thought I might be having issues with my sight. But I didn't want to go get tested. I don't like going to get tested. I'm not going to tell you when the last time I went to the dentist was. Somebody <laughs> I don't like going to the doctor. Uh, but Aaliyah has been urging me, you know, that I should. And in the back of my mind, I thought, it's kind of curious. I just want to know. At a certain point, I start thinking, is this mental? Am I going insane? You know, is this all a construct of my imagination? Or is there anything actually to it? So I succumbed, and I went to Costco Valley Vision and, you know, got my eyes checked. And um, I didn't want to because I've had good eyes. I don't want an excuse to have to wear glasses when I drive, you know. Um, but honestly... I found out that I have astigmatism in an eye, and I don't need glasses to drive, but I might need glasses so that I can look at a screen long-term without getting, like, irritation in my eyes. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. In order to help my eyesight get better, I had to view my condition correctly. My pride, I don't like the idea of wearing glasses. I didn't like the idea of going to the doctor to get my eyes checked. I didn't like the idea of sitting in this little stupid chair and telling him what the numbers were or the letters were on the wall and feeling like I got them all wrong. Those are all blows to my pride. And yet, in order to see correctly, I had to assess myself correctly. I had to see my own self correctly and the fact that I might need it if I'm going to actually see other things well. Here's the thing. If we don't view ourselves correctly, we won't be able to view others correctly either. And Jesus gives us the key to knowing how we must view ourselves in the last verse, verse 13, when he says, I did not call, come to call the righteous but sinners. We must remember that we were just like Matthew and his friends. We were no better. We have not done anything to deserve this. It is a gift of God, and it is the work of Christ. Paul and Peter and Matthew, their identity is not in the fact that they were sinners. That was not the identity that they stood on. They stood on the identity of being new creations by Christ, but they were always cognizant of the fact that they, until they reached glory, were sinful men, and they had done nothing in the sight of God to earn his accolades and his favor. Paul writes, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me as foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in his name. The sinner who has received mercy from the Lord is the only one who can truly grant mercy. He who has received forgiveness is the only one who can truly extend forgiveness. And that is what God desires from us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not given us what we deserve. You have not treated us in accordance with our sins, but that in your mercy we have found redemption in the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we would never scorn that reality and that truth by acting proud, by acting like we are above 
those that we walk among. Father, make us a humble people and a people that know what you really desire. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.